This is Care Less, Do More. We are back for season two of Care Less, Do More. This is your host, Michelle Parker. Thanks to all for tuning into season one. Personally, I had an absolute blast figuring things out for my first ever podcast and getting to listen to so many incredible guests on the show was such a treat. With winter holding on in Tahoe, it was nice to take a pause and get some turns in without cameras this spring. Spring to me is when the gathering of like-minded friends gets out in the mountains for long days and long walks, and it's such a joyous time. Personally, I think it's the most underrated part of the season. And I'm excited to get back into the swing of things for season two of Care Less, Do More. And our first guest of the season is Mike Rogie. Mike is a Tahoe local who brought an old magazine with so much heritage back to life. He's four years deep with Mountain Gazette, a magazine that I've subscribed to from the very beginning. And in an age where mags are disappearing left and right, I'm so down with supporting those that I love. This independent mag is larger than life and covers so much more than just skiing. It's beautiful, more of a coffee table statement piece than a magazine and has longer in-depth articles of which I personally find to be insightful and thoroughly enjoy reading them. Before we dive in, I'd like to thank one of our original sponsors, Darn Tough Vermont, for supporting the show from the beginning. Darn Tough makes socks, and in my opinion, they make the very best socks. Gone are the days of wearing cotton socks for me, and with how much time I spend on my feet, I need socks that are made to last. Darn Tufts are made of wool, which helps keep your feet regulated in temperature, they smell better, and they dry faster. They use more material in places of common wear and tear, and they're guaranteed for life. If you head over to darntuff.com right now, you can enter to win socks for life. And they have so many different styles, there's absolutely something for everyone. My guest on our show today has been a part of ski culture for a very long time, a journalist, a film producer from the East Coast who has worked at Powder Magazine, Vice Sports, and the Ski Journal. He moved to Tahoe and started a family while simultaneously reviving a magazine by the name of Mountain Gazette through his company, The Verb Cabin. In 2020, Mike went out on a limb purchasing Mountain Gazette as other magazines were going out of business and disappearing in number. To date, Mountain Gazette has sold out of every copy and is growing. Mike is a sucker for nostalgia and flipped the traditional magazine model to bring his customers a high quality print magazine that is far too big to bring on an airplane. Welcome to the show, Mike Rogie. Thanks for having me, buddy. Hell yeah, I'm so excited. This is my first podcast in a minute. Well, I'm happy to be here. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll see if I uh, can nail this and, and do well. And I'm sure you'll do just fine. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. It's always fun. It's actually been such a fun exercise to sit down with close friends and like dive deep a little bit and have focused conversation that's uninterrupted. Like I love the process of it. Yeah. We were saying yesterday when you invited me on the show, like we've known each other quite some time. And I feel like we're, we're kind of known now for the last like maybe year or so for having like 45 minute to hour long phone calls. Yep. But yeah, here we are. You now are in the driver's seat and you get to kind of ask me whatever you want. Yeah. So. Usually it's the opposite because you're the journalist. I know. Like, I wonder, yeah. I don't even know how many times I've interviewed you over the years. I think we met in Montreal at IF3, like one of the first ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still in college. Yeah. And so wow. you were probably still street skiing. <laughs> Quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, some things have changed. Not a lot's changed. Yeah. But here we are. One thing that's changed that's kind of cool is we only live a few miles from each other. Yep. And you've become a close personal friend of not only me, but also my four-year-old son. Probably closer with Elliot. For sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Every time he sees, I mean, it's North Lake Tahoe. There's quite a few 
Red Bull athletes that are either in town. Um, in my son's eyes, every single one of them is Michelle. <laughs> so um, I think he just saw someone at the bike park recently with a Red Bull helmet. And he was like, there's Michelle. Oh. <laughs> oh. And like didn't even care to like see if that Red Bull athlete was going to do something sick as they tend to do. Yeah. He was just like, oh, it's not my friend. So whatever. But <laughs> That's so awesome. I love that. I love Elliot. Yeah, we go back. We're pretty tight, him and I. I love like when you have a friend who has a child and they recognize you time and time again. You're like, all right. I always like really intentionally try to make a good impression on them. And like, well, I'm a kid at heart. So it's kind of easy. I I, like get down on their level. I think it's cool too. Like just growing up here, um, you know, where I grew up in upstate New York, there weren't a lot of professional athletes from there. Maybe like a football player, baseball player, basketball player or something like that. But maybe three athletes ever. Yeah. But here, I mean... My son doesn't know Cody Towns and are like the 50 project guy. He's little Cody and he's always called him little Cody and we don't know why. <laughs> and he just calls him little Cody and you're Michelle, his friend that he sees at the ski area and you know, Elise and he's just, he's got all these like pals and it's, it's pretty fun to watch. And then for him to go to like a big ski movie premiere, which he's into now and see you on there, he's like, Oh my God, it kind of, I think it's for me as a parent, it's really cool to watch your kid like, see that these dreams are a little more attainable than maybe I saw them as a kid. So that's Mm -hmm. pretty sweet. I like that. Yeah, for sure. And speaking of when you were a kid, you just mentioned you grew up in upstate New York. I did, yeah. About um, an hour and a half from Montreal. Okay. So yeah, right on the like border of Vermont and Canada in a town called Queensbury, New York, which is right in between Lake George, where my parents live now, and Saratoga Springs, where I'm going (laughs) to see Dead & Company in a couple weeks. Yes, yes. I'm wearing the, the hoodie right now. From the last summer tour. That's right. Yeah. I got to get more tickets. I might buy them off of you. Okay. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And growing up in New York, which is the state that has the most ski areas as a state, right? Yeah. Yeah. Most ski areas of anywhere in the country. And we also have two, maybe three now ski areas that are actually owned by the state. Oh, wow. And maintained with, you know, taxpayer money and that comes from the fact that uh, Lake Placid hosted two Olympics. They did the 32 and the, the 80 Olympics. Mm-hmm. 80 Olympics being like the miracle on ice. Right. But um, yeah, I mean, skiing's like a rich part of, of the Adirondacks. Um, conservation's a, a big part. Like, it's funny when I moved out west, like, I think I toured, sort of took like land conservation for granted because the Adirondack Park is 6 million acres. It's the largest protected landmass in the continental United States. Wow. And it's protected at a state level. We call it forever wild. And there's just parts of the state where you can't take a motorized vehicle. You can't build. And upstate New York's really conservative. Mm -hmm. But that's part of it. It's the conservation part of conservative that I think a lot of folks have forgotten about. And yeah, I mean, just grew up outdoors. I had a, you know, mom and dad that took us hiking a lot. Dad, like, used to bump chairs at the mountain. And that's kind of how I fell in love with skiing. And we were like a rental equipment company, you know, family, sorry. And then uh, we would, yeah, I started, I bought used gear. I don't think I got a, a new pair of skis until I was like 18 or 19 mm-hmm. when I started writing about skiing. And what like drew you to write about skiing of all things? Well, Michelle, I was not good enough to follow your career path, so I had to follow <laughs> a different one. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that <clears throat> is a misconception about a lot of sports is that if you're not um, if you're not like 
particularly great at them or if they don't like take to you right away. Like I readily admit that like skiing, I did not take to skiing quickly. I may have loved it a lot more than like my skill level matched it. It's probably still true today, but I found that through writing, I could still love it, mm-hmm. you know, and I could think about it. I could interpret it. I could uh, be really empathetic towards the people that were really good and like maybe had sponsors and like what was the pressure like and I I had all these questions about what it was like and so I started asking people I was fortunate enough to grow up like 40 minutes of north of Albany where you know Jay Lev and Mike Nick were starting line ski boards at the time yeah so they would come up and do demos uh Glenn Plake and Chris Turpin came through when I was a kid um for the Plake down home tour with K2 right and then MSP and poor boys and level one used to do premieres in Saratoga Warren Miller used to do them in Albany. So like East Coast was not the epicenter of skiing like like this is here in North Lake Tahoe. But um, at the time, there was a lot coming on. Mind you, I'm the same age as, you know, Tom Wallace, I'm at Dolly, a lot of those level one stars that were coming, Will Wesson, Andy Perry. So I would go to rail jams and, man, you want to know if you're good enough, like try entering a rail jam with Will Wesson and Tom Wallace. Right, <laughs> you find right. out pretty quickly that, you know, the two greatest maybe rail skiers of all time you know, we're there. Yeah. And they've always been good. And so, um, that helped. They were around. And I guess that was the thing is I didn't feel intimidated being next to them. I felt like these guys are really good. I should ask them questions and their careers were coming up. My career was coming up. And I think that was cool about the East coast is we were kind of all in it together. Yeah. You touched on two things that I really want to come back to. And the first being that there are a few state-owned ski resorts in New York. Yeah, Gore Mountain and Whiteface. Okay. And how does that change? Like, I'm I'm relating this to Greece. Greece is like the government owns the ski resorts and thus the tickets are $12 when I was there per entry. That's your entry fee. And it was way more accessible and like it wasn't like as for profit as we much experience here in the United States. Yeah, I think like <clears throat> I think, I mean, I haven't lived in New York in, gosh, I'm coming up on like 18 years. Mm-hmm. It's been a while. But um, I think what it does is like it regulates it. Yeah. So I wouldn't say it's affordable, but I wouldn't say it's so expensive that you can't afford it. It's like it's steady. Right. To my knowledge, and, and if I'm wrong about this, please correct me, but um, anyone listening, but... I feel like the prices and the passes at Gore Mountain and at Whiteface have, have relatively stayed the same from when I was in high school. Maybe okay. they've gone up a little bit with inflation. But one thing that's cool is like, you know, infrastructure. Like Gore is in the state budget and can, you know, like if you're the governor can allocate funds along with the state Congress to, you know, put in a new lift or rebuild the lodge or do mountain biking or not do mountain biking or expand. Like, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm hopeful for is, um, is the ski train used to be a really cool thing. And I know we're all talking about like, Oh, wouldn't a ski train be cool? Like even from like Sacramento up to Tahoe, um, the ski train in New York ran for a long time from Albany to North Creek. And so most of the people in like the thirties and forties that were learning how to ski, um, you know, came up by train, which is awesome. I don't know. I just think that like we, we have all the, New York's done a lot of things, in in my opinion, like correctly, and then kind of abandoned them mm. based on car culture. But um, yeah, for me, like I grew up skiing a place called West Mountain, 
Uh, same place that uh, Andy Hayes grew up skiing. Oh, no way. Yeah, Andy Hayes is a local Palisades Tahoe skier, lives in Olympic Valley. Um, Bit of know, a local legend. Local legend. He was in that uh, Pit Viper montage like video recently. But right. he, uh, yeah, he grew up in, in Corinth. Um, and we actually, our baseball teams played each other. He's older than I am, so I never played him. But yeah, like he's right around the corner from where I grew up. So, so cool. And West Mountain had $10 nights, Monday and Tuesday nights. I grew up night skiing. Like I'd say 80% of the skiing I did before I was 18 was like night skiing. Yes. So that was, that was really cool. That was a good time. Night skiing is so epic. It's epic. And like, <clears throat> I find that like, it's a really good, safe place. Like one, everything's like pretty firm. Yep. So like you progress a little slower than like if you were skiing like in the slushy afternoons because like you got to nail those landings. Totally. Um, but also like we get out of school at like 2.33 o'clock and the mountain was open until 10. You could get six to seven hours of skiing in in the same day you went to a full day of school. And that to me felt really like I mean, what a privilege yeah. to, to have that. And so, yeah, at a certain age, I want to say like maybe like 10 or 11, my parents just started dropping me off there. It's a really safe community where we grew up and... And I would just get dropped off by myself or, and would meet a cousin or a best friend, you know, the best, you know, best man at my wedding is my ski buddy from when I was 10. And, um, yeah, I think like you learn how to budget, you know, your parents give you like five bucks and you've got to like eat a meal. Mm -hmm. And so you do, and you figure that out, like, what can I afford, blah, blah, blah. And like, there's a lot of social dynamics. There's like older kids. Like I always thought that was cool. Like when I got to high school and I was a freshman, I had juniors and seniors that would pick me up and drive me to school because they were my ski buddies. Yeah. And like, that's pretty rare to be hanging out with someone three years older than you. And so I've always kind of felt comfortable like being around, you know, older people or like people with like more power or more like prestige, just being like, I belong here. Mm -hmm. You know, I can be in this room and keep my mouth shut and learn. And yeah, night skiing was, was so epic. And, And I mean, it's, it's great. I hope that you know, with Boreal here, like I can pass that on to my kids as well. It's like the love of night skiing of like, Hey, we can go to school yeah, and then we can head up there and we yeah. can just cruise around for a few hours and kind of figure it out. Totally. I wonder, I mean, growing up at Palisades, we had night skiing. We had Tuesday night downhill was like our big night. And I would take my two tens out there and get off the tram and just tuck and hold the tuck all the way down. And we'd always like come to the chamois. My parents would be like drinking beers and eating pizza, get yeah. a slice of pizza, go on the tram again. And it was like, yeah, there's so much there. Like I learned so much doing that and uh, yeah, such a good time. I think like there's something to be said about ski areas. And this is the difference between a ski area and a ski resort. A ski resort, you go and stay there. A ski area, um, and I, I count Palisades and Alpine Meadows as ski areas, even though you can stay there. Like that's it is like, the whole family can go. You can just chill there and just be there. They're cultural centers. You know, yeah. it's like what the town square was in like the 1800s, you know? Right. And so my parents did the same. My mom has skied four days in her life, but she's probably spent a thousand nights at West Mountain hanging at the bar with her friends from high school, catching up, you know, just, just being there. Mm-hmm. And then my dad would be off skiing with his friends. My sister would be skiing with her friends. I'd be skiing with my friends. And like all of us were there having our own experience, but we were, it's funny, we were together and apart, but like we were still like in the same zone. Yeah, it's what you did as a family. Yeah, I mean, that was it. That was what we did as a family. Yeah. We, like my dad took us skiing. We'd go to Vermont on the weekends. Those were really important for us. Like driving an hour and a half to ski was like epic. 
you know, my dad would let me skip school if I had good grades. And so I always had good grades, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like such a motivator. Good incentive. Yeah. We'd go to Killington. We'd go up to Whiteface, which was really cool. And like, I, I, I do laugh sometimes when I, I read about like some West coast perceptions of like what East coast skiing is. And it's like, no one on the East coast cares at all because like for us, like going to Jay peak and hitting a storm day and getting to ski pow really for the first time in your life. Like imagine that like you're 12 or 13 years old. You've been skiing since you were four or five and you're skiing pow legitimate pow for the first time in your life. Mm -hmm. It's so earned, so transformational. Like it like just, it stays with you forever. I mean, I've had so many pow days the last 15 years I've lived on the West coast, but the ones from the East almost like stick out more. Mm-hmm. because of all the times I didn't get to ski it, you know? Yeah, that's funny. I got an amazing day. I think it was at Stowe, but I could be wrong. And it was a powder day in November yeah. on the East Coast. And I was like, that totally sticks out in my memory because I was like, this never happens. Like, I don't know. I've skied here a handful of times and I'm totally scoring right now. Like, it was really special. It's cool, man. I mean, I don't know. I think about, for me, like my appreciation of outdoor culture comes from the Northeast because it's so tightly packed together. And yet every state, even different parts of the state have different microcultures. Um, you know, like Southern Vermont entirely different from central or Northern Vermont, like so different. I mean, Western New York where like the, I hate New York kids are from like Will and Andy and Ahmet and Garai and Ross, like, their culture out west is so different from our culture on the eastern side of the state or even like my wife's ski culture from the southern part of the state Mm -hmm. you know or even like i mean it's just to me that's what's cool and i I started finding the nuances and i think that's what helped my writing career yeah was being like these are new york skiing is not the same it's not like blanket Mm -hmm. they're all different they all have different weird little microcosms about them and and i tried to find those details and write about them and show them because they were things to be celebrated. So you were always a writer. Like, it sounds like you picked up the pen when you were in high school and you got fired up on. Yeah, I mean, I, my mom really, um, you know, installed my sister and I a love of reading. The idea that um, if we were bored, we could go to a bookshelf and not be bored. Yeah. She read to us a lot. We read a lot. She was really like, she even does it with my kids now, like where she like drills in like ABCs and saying things and pronouncing, you know, pronouncing things correctly. And like, she's not a stickler or anything like that, but she just like, she loves language. She reads like crazy too. Mm Mm-hmm. She reads true crime. My mom's been on true true crime kick for like 40 years. Yes. (laughs) So she's all about it. But, um, yeah, I, I, had some good mentors when I was in high school. Um, my sophomore year, I had a teacher that started grading me against myself and not against the class. And so, you know, the class could kind of mail in an essay. And if I tried to mail it in, like they would pass, I would fail. Right. Like, they're like, no, like you're better than this. You're talented. And then my senior year, I had taken enough classes where I had early dismissal so I could get out and ski during the day. Um, but also I was taking three English classes like during that time. So I took Shakespeare, Greek mythology, and then um, an AP English class for college credit. And so I was like reading and writing like a ton. And I've sort of just always, it's just kind of how I am. Mm-hmm. I, I read all the time. Yeah. All the time. It's crazy. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know. I, I've, 
kind of fallen in love with reading and learning. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how you, you become a decent writer. Yeah. It's just by seeing everything. Totally. Yeah. And different styles of writing. I think for me, I didn't go to college. I like skipped that part of life. And, but in the back of my head, I was like, if I'm not going to college and I'm not gaining this experience, I have to self-educate. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Similarly, I love to read. And so like, yeah, I don't know. The only thing that I really collect are books. It's yeah, hard for me to same. get rid of them, but I'm starting to because we have a lot of amazing free libraries around now. <laughs> yeah. um, but also watching Hadley, who is someone who I just admire and think the world of. And do you subscribe to her newsletter? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I amazing. Do. I, I do. love it. It's a little gift you get in your inbox all the time. And I love her writing and and I her book recommendations. Like it's made me a more enthusiastic reader as well. I think newsletters have been my favorite uh, technological advancement in writing mm-hmm. um, of the last, like, I don't know, call it three years, like Substack. Like, I, I subscribe to four or five Substacks that are so necessary um, and newsletters. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about Mountain Gazette soon, but, like, I, I mean, I went to school to be an English teacher, high school English teacher. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always say I failed my way into ski writing, you know? Yeah. But, uh, I learned everything I know about Shopify, Clavio, paying taxes in different States, like, you know, all all of it through newsletters and sub stacks and just finding good ones and being like, okay, I've kind of like this one's, I've kind of like tapped out. Yeah. There's a better one here. Um, I don't know. I just think like, they teach us over at Tahoe Exhibition Academy too. I've taught journalism there and it's crazy. Some of my first students that I taught four years ago are actually graduating on Saturday and six of them are going to journalism school, Wow! which feels really cool. And they're going to like Berkeley, they're going to like Columbia, they're going to MSU, like SDSU. And, um, one student's going up to, uh, university of Vancouver and is going to try to like intern with like schmuck and forecast magazine. And you're just like, Oh yeah. Like, I did that. Like, you're going to go, like, I know where you're, you're headed. Yeah. Which is really exciting. So yeah, I I love, definitely love reading and I read to my kids like every night. Elliot's got like a stack of books. I bet. Yeah. And it's big. It's a very big deal for him every night to pick out one to three books that he's going to read. When I say one to three, like one book is like a 40 minute epic for us. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he needs like minimum 20 to 30 minutes of reading time every night. And I so, love that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. That would be the best gift I can give them is that you're not going to learn everything from me, mm-hmm. but you can learn anything you want from books. So, since we're on topic, do you have like a favorite book? I do. I do. So, that same mentor, when I was a sophomore, when I graduated, he gave me a copy of Norm McLean's River Runs Through It. Okay. Um, and I know a lot of people are probably familiar with the Brad Pitt movie mm-hmm. um the author of a river runs through it uh died um having watched that film and hating it thinking like my life's work got ruined by this but oh yeah um yeah it's elliot's middle name is mclean mm-hmm. um i read that book when i was 18 i went to school like i said to be an english teacher followed my high school girlfriend to albany new york we split up sort of like what do i do with my life i reread that book and I moved to Missoula, Montana. I like packed up my Jeep, put my dog in the back with my skis and went to be a poetry major, mm-hmm. 
went full blown, like, let's do this. And then quickly realized, holy crap, I'm going to be broke quickly. And yeah. went back to New York and finished college. But like, yeah, I mean, the West, like, because of that book, like, I couldn't imagine the idea of like, you know, McLean paraphrasing saying like more mountains in every direction than my eyes could ever see. Yeah. Like thinking about that and being like, well, I want to see that. I want to like feel that, you know? And so that book, changed my life. I mean, it took him 10 years to write it. And he wrote at the end of his life, his father said, you know, Norman, one day you'll write the story of our family and it'll be true. And I think that's really just powerful Mm -hmm. to encapsulate every experience of your family into like a short novel. Yeah. So yeah, he's a hero. His, um, his son wrote for issue 195. Wow. Which was cool. He wrote a book called home waters and we ran the first chapter of it which was huge. His, his son also let us run in 194, like an excerpt of one of Norman's pieces. So it's huge. I mean, that book's changed my life. And yeah. That's why, I mean, there's a lot of books that have changed my life, but that one is like tippy top. I love that. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? Yeah. I was just thinking about it. I feel like it's actually, it hasn't been steadfast for my entire life. Like that's changed depending on what I'm interested in. In high school, in AP English, we were forced to read things like the grapes of wrath and yeah. I did not. I read the cliff notes yeah, yeah. and then after high school I dove into Steinbeck and I have, I'm pretty sure every single book he's ever written he's and I back. like love Steinbeck, the but Pearl. then yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. So many good books. East of Eden, like all, I don't know his descriptions of California and everything. And then that kind of morphed into more adventure books, endurance. I love endurance and, uh, Oh, what is the one? Oh my gosh, it's going to come to me. There's a climber named Gaston Rebouffet. I'm probably pronouncing his name incorrectly, a French climber. And uh, yeah, his book about climbing in that like, it's like a poetic version of riding up climbing, which makes me want to climb. And it's like this beautiful, like he's falling in love with the rock and with the environment and the task at hand. And I think that, I think it's like, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's an amazing book. And yeah. When um, uh, my wife Megan and I met, I think we were dating for like maybe three months. Um, I don't even know how we got on the topic. You know, you're excited, you're dating someone new. And we somehow got to think of like, what's like that one book that could like define you, that you'll know everything about me. And she gave me the book Just Kids by Patti Smith. Okay. Um, and Patti Smith is like a, the godmother of punk music. And it's all about like the art and music scene in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And I'm thinking, like, I'm never, I'm not gonna like anything about this book, but like, I know who my wife is because of that book. It's just really, really cool. And right. I give her a river runs through it. And yes. I've been married for, <laughs> yeah, seven years now. So, so cool. I don't know. That was really cool. That was the first person I'd ever done that with. And it was yeah. just like, yeah, here, try to figure me out. That's awesome. It was cool. I dig that. It's uh, Starlight and Storm by Gaston. All right, I'll check, I'll check yeah. it out. The Gaston is that climbing move too, where you're kind of pulling apart. <laughs> named after him. I like that. Yeah. That's a beautiful book though. Um, okay. So you clearly had a deep passion for skiing and was riding your way of kind of staying attached to that industry or getting more in depth with it. I didn't even know there was an industry. I like right. just, um, I started writing, um, a blog for newschoolers.com for free, just mm-hmm. like it was a personal thing. And I had like a really good readership. And I remember thinking like, 
is I'm pretty competitive. I grew up playing competitive sports, you know, baseball, football, basketball, like I'm never competed like skiing wise, mm-hmm. but skiing was like different. I never felt like a competitive sport to me. Um, so I used to look at the numbers and I used to like, it was good because I wasn't getting paid, but I didn't need to be paid. I was 17. I was living yeah. at home with my parents, you know, like, and so I would just try stuff. I think one time I wrote a blog about going to the county fair. It had nothing to do with skiing. It was like one of my most, I was like posting photos of like pigs and rides and stuff. With my food. Love that. And just, I tried, tried everything and tried to like present this well-rounded view of skiing, of what skiing meant to me. And then they were bought and Schmuck was hired and Schmuck reached out to me. He's like, dude, you clearly have a very popular blog here. You have a good, re- a good portion of our traffic is are your readers why don't we start paying you and i think at that point i was like 20 and they started paying me and i like quit my last real job i was a bus boy at a italian restaurant called mama lucia's (laughs) so yeah no more spaghetti sauce and just started writing and i you know i just told austin holt our marketing director at mountain gazette like i wrote like 280 articles wow in a a year yeah just like crushed pumping them out yeah like Profiles, uh, never really got into reviews, but like profiles, like movie previews, like I would write um, opinions of trailers, like music selection, like would interview musicians if they were in there, would interview, um, you know, the kids who were helping their friends dig backcountry jumps, like mm-hmm. not the skier or yeah. the filmer, but like the friends, like why are you doing this? Like um, tried to interview as many professional skiers as I could and not really find out like how they became pro skiers, but like why they were still doing it, what they were getting out of it more than like money. Yeah. And I fell in love with the dream, Mm -hmm. which we all do, which is the idea of like, maybe if I keep doing this, I'll get to stand on like, for me, the big dream at first was standing on the deck of the half pipe at the Vermont open. Mm -hmm. I loved half pipe skiing, like competitive half pipe skiing, in my opinion, is still the best kind of competitive skiing. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it is so gnarly. It is so consequential. And like as East coasters, we avoid, we, you know, we embrace ice, but we avoid as much as possible, but like a nice steep icy pipe, like for some people that's heaven with the race turn and everything. It's like, I don't know. It's just crazy. And I got to do that. Got to go to the Mega Mother Hucker and stand next to the band at Mount Snow while, like, dudes were. I mean, like, I think there was no better place in the world to be than the early 2000s on the East Coast. Like, level one was popping off. Every film company was doing, like, a Troy, New York, or Boston, or whatever, like, East Coast scene. You had the stepped boys were really coming into their own. Like, and what's crazy is, like, where all these people are now. Yeah. I mean, like, I met Ryan Dunphy during that time, mm-hmm. you know? who just graduated like an MBA in environmental impact business. You know, like he's our old pal and like yeah. the bro bomb guys, like who were trying to be like satirical and like, it just felt like a really, I mean, I met Josh Berman. I met, you know, Neil Stairkopoulos. Like Neil is amazing. Yeah. Such a talent. I wow. mean, Neil made Wicked, which mm-hmm. is like, I've joked. It's like the big Lebowski of ski films and that, and not, <laughs> not like as far as like tone, but like as far as like cult classic. Yeah. There are people that will still say it's the best ski film ever made. You know, Kobe West, Simon Dumont, um, those kids all coming from the Northeast. And that time was awesome. It felt like every single weekend I could leave my school 
sleep in the back of my car with a sleeping bag and could like be watching Simon Dumont break a world quarter pipe record. Right. Watching crazy street skiing go down level one, watching like a park shoot with Jeff Winterton, you know, Jeff Winterton and I worked on a feature at the ski journal and I was like, do you, do you remember me, dude? And he's like, no. And then I like started telling him like, remember I like came up to you and asked like, how do you make a living doing this? <laughs> he's like, I do remember you. And I was like, that was like a big thing for me because I wanted to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. I think of the almost famous kid. Mm-hmm. Like I was young. I was like 10 years younger than everyone. Like I'd see Nate Abbott and like, I was like, yo, I know exactly who you are. When you started shooting, you shoot with McConkie. Like I knew all of it. I knew freeze. I knew powder, free skier, all of it. I was just like, I was watching this media happen and I was like contributing. Mm -hmm. That was really big to me. I think the word contributor is like the best title I've ever had is like, here's this movement, here's this culture, which you were a part of, you know, with line skis and park shoots and all that. I mean, you were watching the sick stuff happen. You were contributing to it as well. You weren't just a bystander. That, that was really important time for me. Yeah. And I got lucky, man. The guys from ski, the East came Jeff and rooster and they threw me a lifeline. They're like, we will hire you to come over here and blog for us. And be our marketing guy, be our team manager, be our customer service, be our shipping. Like I was their first employee. Wow. And so I moved to Burlington, Vermont mm-hmm. right after college and took a job, lived in a basement. Yes. It was good. Yeah. And I was, per- and like life was perfect, dude. I had a ski pass. I got two or three pairs of skis a year. I could go anywhere in the Northeast I wanted for free. Yeah. I had hotel rooms. I could just like, and it felt like I had a license to steal. I was, I was good. I remember saying like, this is what I will do for the rest of my life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then powder came calling. And so I, Derek Taylor has, has joked to me that like one of the first questions I asked was if I get the job, can I stay in Vermont? Oh my God. Which is nuts. Yeah. Like, why would you want to, you know, not that Vermont's bad, but cause like, you're living your dream. I loved it there. Mm-hmm. I loved it there. I mean, we're, we're going back there in three weeks, you know, to like see that community. I'm still very much in like in love and in touch with that community. Mm-hmm. So, and what did Derek say? Oh, uh, no. <laughs> and so I, I packed up my car again. I moved west. I moved to Southern California, which was a trip. Mm-hmm. And that's where Powder was located at that time. What year was that? Um, that was in, I graduated college in 2008. I think I moved out there in 2010. Okay. Yeah. So that was pretty scary. I didn't know anyone west of Colorado. Mm-hmm. Like no one. Yeah, and then all of a sudden you go from being in the mountains, kind of, in Vermont, in Burlington. Dude, I go from the home of Bernie Sanders to the birthplace of Richard Nixon. Yeah. Like, <laughs> culturally speaking, I was not ready for, like, yeah. palm tree. I mean, Champlain, like, looking at Lake Champlain and the Adirondacks and, like, having your heart filled up every morning when you look at that, to being, like, palm trees and tacos and tequila and like what like i don't think i'd ever taken a shot of tequila in my life like i was just like what the hell is southern california culture i listened to sublime in college like you know but yeah i got there and the guys at powder were were a little cold at first like Mm. to be fair like i think they were just like this kid loves the internet and the east coast and rail skiing like what in the right f is he doing here and I don't really know why what I was doing there either. I just knew that I wanted to try to put my community in the, in those pages. Yeah. And I was probably pretty annoying doing so. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. How long was your run at Powder? 
Three years. Three years, yeah. Yeah, Porter, Porter Fox had told me, he's a senior editor, he's written some really amazing books about climate, um, told me you kind of need to stay three years at Powder to have any kind of impact. So I stayed for three years, and then I moved to Truckee. Mm-hmm. Three years, you moved to Truckee. Is that when you started working for the Ski Journal? No, so I left Powder and was got, and you know, I will say like, I, I would never consider myself like self-made. I am like the product of very good people offering me lifelines. Mm-hmm. You know, Jeff and Rooster with Ski the East, like who knows, man, if I hadn't gotten that job maybe three months out, I would have, I'd be a teacher. Right. You know? And so when I was leaving Powder, my thought was I'm going to go have a winter in Tahoe. I'll freelance for different magazines, figure it out. And Megan Michelson hooked me up. She was at xgames.com and I had a non-compete when I left Powder and Megan helped me by assigning me like 15 or 20 articles that I wrote and she's like, I won't publish them until your non-competes up. Wow, yeah. And so I was getting income. Yeah. ESPN was paying pretty well back then and that was my lifeline. And then, I mean, it happens all the time. Come for a winter. Yep. See summer. Stay for the summer. Stay summer. I mean... It was so cool. I mean, a lot of our friends like were so cool and welcoming here. I mean, Darren Ralves did this thing that I think about a lot. I don't even know if he remembers doing this, but like I moved to Truckee. I didn't know really anyone. I mean, I knew you, I knew Cody, I knew Elise, but you guys are, you know, not really here. Yeah. And Darren was here. His kids were younger. And he sent me a message and he goes, hey, I have got something really important to talk to you about. I think it's an opportunity or something like that. Meet me at Jack's on the tracks. Okay, sweet. And at that point, I was a freelancer. Like, any opportunity was worth looking into. We went to Jack's. There was no opportunity. He just wanted to welcome me to Truckee, and he took me out to breakfast. (laughs) So awesome. And I was like, damn, dude. Like, thank you. Like, it just made me feel like that was the first time I think I felt part of the community. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Eric Rohner met me at um, uh, in Tahoe City for coffee. And, like, again, like, he just, like, had a coffee and a muffin waiting for me. Same thing. Like, hey, dude, welcome. He, like, got me backstage at Nitro Circus in Vegas. And, like, yes. hooked me up. You know, Timmy Dutton. Like, mm. so good. Like, dude was like, hey, come. <laughs> I'll never forget. I was skiing Alpine Meadows because Dan Abrams and Megan Michelson love Alpine. So I've naturally always been an Alpine skier. And Timmy Dutton called me up one day. And he goes, hey, do you want to hear a good joke? I said, yeah. And he goes, Alpine Meadows. Why don't you meet me at then Squaw? <laughs> Yes, and Timmy, Timmy and Timmy showed me around. Yeah. And like I think that's really important because like if you get to KT, you're kind of like, where do I ski? And have a kid that grew up here, like Timmy, be like, oh, come here, come mm-hmm. here, try this, try this, try this. Like, here's how you and it was a pow day. And I just thought that was so cool. It was like he took time to be like, I mean, I can't keep up with Timmy Dutton, you know. Mm-hmm. But he was nice. Yeah. He skied with me the way I ski with my four-year-old. Oh, go this that. way, go this way. And so, yeah, I just fell in love with how warm and welcoming the community was. And at that time, I started doing a little freelance work for Vice, which was amazing. Like, my mentor, John Martin, he's the CEO of Cream Magazine now. But he was, at the time, the publisher of Vice Magazine and was working on their HBO show. I got to watch Vice, like, hit their apex. Right. They were still on the way up. Yeah. And we all know what happened. Like, they, you know, they went bankrupt and, like... Who knows if they'll be, I I think they'll be around, but like a shell of what they used to be. Mm -hmm. And 
again, eager, asking questions. How much can you teach me? And he was an open book and taught me everything about like, how do you produce a documentary for NBC? I had no idea. No idea. How do you, what's intellectual property? What's a good way to do online content? What's a bad way to do online content? What's clickbait? What's like tantalizing content? Mm -hmm. You know, like it was cool. And then he hired me to be the action sports contributor for vice sports. It was cool. Yeah, that Uh, is cool. It was epic. I mean, I went to their office in Brooklyn and the dude had just gotten back from going to North Korea with Rodman. And I'm just like sitting there like, what? Yeah. Like, you know, Thomas Morton was actually our um, editor at large for the first two issues, three issues of the Gazette. Mm -hmm. He's like, he had a show on Vice TV, like just Vice. I was never like fully employed by Vice, but like they gave me enough opportunities. John gave me enough opportunities. Will Grant, who's got a story in the current issue of the Gazette, was my editor there. Like they, I think almost like powder almost like ski the east almost like megan they threw me a lifeline mm-hmm. and they're like look you have something of value to add to us and so i learned from them and then at that time i started verb cabin and with blake kimmel who had made a lot of the early gibberish videos mm-hmm. that we all know and love and we went to haiti and made a documentary about kahende wiley who's this artist from brooklyn and it was amazing it was like that was like super transform uh, transformational for me got to publish my first book, which I always will find hilarious is that my kids will probably think I have a ski book. I've never written a ski book. Right. I've written a book about Haitian art. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, Kehinde painted Obama's portrait, right? Which was wow. epic and like kind of added value to the work we'd done for him. Yeah. So it's been like a long and winding road. Yeah. Very much a so. A long, strange trip, if you will. <laughs> Yeah. So then you get employed at the ski journal. Yeah. So, um, verb cabin was doing well. We had some clients and, uh, Megan, my wife was pregnant. We were married we had a house and we were like, okay, wow. Daycare is pretty expensive. Yeah. And at the time, Les Anthony, uh, former powder editor, like just another mentor and hero of mine, uh, recommended me for that job. And took ski journal job, did ski journal for two volumes, learned a lot, and then decided that I could do a direct consumer magazine myself. That's like the short version of the story. Yep. And yeah, then that July, when I knew I was leaving ski journal, um, Peter Cray and Doug Schnitzbahn, who were two former Mountain Gazette editors, called me because I had talked to them and they're like, Mountain Gazette might be for sale. Wow. And so I started talking with Blake, the owner, the then owner of Mountain Gazette. And we negotiated for like six months. And then I bought it outside of outdoor retailer at nine in the morning. No kidding. We did the deal on like a napkin and he insisted on drinking a Coors Banquet beer at nine in the morning. So... <laughs> it's in Megan framed it. It's in the bill of sale that we have in our office. It says for an undisclosed amount and one cold beer. That is awesome. I handed him a check and walked into my first outdoor retailer for the first time. We've been so many of walked into outdoor retailer as a business owner. Yeah. Of a magazine. Yeah. Just went down. It was crazy. We signed the deal in the flylow booth. You know, Dan officiated my wedding and he also 
his signatures on the bill of sale as a witness. <laughs> yes. So yeah, he's on my marriage certificate. He probably should have been there for the birth of Elliot too. But yep, yeah, yep. But, yeah. Um, and it was crazy. I was like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that time, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but print was starting to, like, magazines were folding. It was toast. They had yeah. been toast since, like, I want to say, like, 2014 mm-hmm. was maybe one of the last. I mean, I'm sure some magazines survived better than others, but, yeah, like, 20, 2012, 2014, we had some really good salad days of powder. Yeah. Big budgets, big magazines, big page counts, you know, to be able to tell really cool stories, but... Yeah, magazines were in super decline. Everyone at that time, everyone was trying to publish on Facebook. Um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. We can all laugh. And say yeah, like, oh, yeah, yeah. My face. I made a face yeah, when you yeah, said yeah, that. Yeah, I was yeah. like, what? <laughs> they were trying to publish on Facebook. They were trying to get more social media followers. That was at a time where like brands would pay you based on your following, right. not like on your substance or what content you were posting, but like how many people. Yeah, it was all about reach. Um, and yeah, mags were toast, but. I kind of learned from Ski Journal, from Surfer's Journal, a little bit from uh, Vice. Like Vice is, that's really how Vice started was their magazine in Montreal. Mm-hmm. It was necessary. Like people would like wait at skate shops for like them to drop that off. It was free. Yeah. But they'd wait. There was this uh, magazine that Mark Paul Darren, Mad Steez, was the creative director of in SoCal called Bliss. It was insane. And that's where I got the idea for like large format. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I saw Victory Journal, which is out of Brooklyn, and they're a stick in ball sports. They say they don't, they don't cover wins and losses or stats, but they cover everything else when it comes to sports. Yeah. And Cade Kreechko had written a story about the bunch for them. And I saw a photo of one of the kids from the bunch like doing a wall ride in that 11 by 17 format. And I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's like this but outdoor. Yeah. And I just, I knew it would work. Call it crazy, but like, I feel like I don't get a lot of these, like, I'm usually a little hesitant. I'm never like, let's just send it and see what happens. Like, it's not who I am. Yeah. But I knew this would work. Yeah, because it didn't exist in the ski industry or in the outdoor industry that much. Like, now it does. Like, I am a subscriber of mostly independent magazines. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Um, I think outdoor culture more than any culture that I can think of is so based on storytelling. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. You know, I have this saying when friends come out here to visit, I'm like, no one's going to ask you how you skied it. Just that you skied it. Yeah. You know, oh, you skied the shoulder of McConkie's dope. <laughs> you tumbled down it. You don't have to tell that part if you don't want to. <laughs> but like, Maybe like fishing and like hunting have these stories too, like, you know, fishing tales or whatever, but like stories are important. Yeah. What you do is important, but how you do it is really important too. And I actually thought what was more interesting is like, I know one of your former guests, like Adrian, right? Adrian's done some real epic things on Everest, but I've gotten to know Adrian over the years and I actually think his like life story adds so much more context to like the things he's done. Yeah. You know, same with like Emily, same with you, same with any athlete, you know, it's like the come up story is important, but like who that person is, who they're growing into, like their state of mind. Mm-hmm. 
like I think some people probably think it's like you're superwoman, right? Like you just put on your cape and you're off, but like you're a human being. Yeah. You have highs, you have lows, you have ins, you have outs, you have lefts, you have rights, you have mediums. You're like a multifaceted person and there's no space where that can exist except in my opinion, Mountain Gazette, mm -hmm. where we can give like grace, the article that you're you know reading right now. I can say grace right between a thousand and 30,000 words, but tell the whole story. That's right. it. That's what I tell all our characters, tell the whole story. Yeah. There's no space limits here. And we're twice a year. So if it takes someone four nights to read Grace's story, that's great. You get to spend four intimate nights with a writer who's telling you the whole story. Mm -hmm. You get to leave and you're like, wow. Like, that was what I knew. I just knew it would work. And I don't know any other title that does that. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Super cool. Yeah. No, I've been... I mean, I remember when you started Mountain Gazette and we, I was kind of talking to you quite a bit leading up to the purchase of Mountain Gazette. And like, for me, living in Tahoe, which I was born and raised here and I love it so much, but I always feel like industry hasn't really been based out of Tahoe. Like we have a little bit of Matchstick with Gaffney being here, but Matchstick's based in Crested Butte. And then, you know, Standard Films is out of Tahoe for sure. And there's been a lot of historical stuff that's happened, but like, having a magazine that comes from Tahoe for me is really important. Like and now I Slush is out of here too. Yeah, Pat totally. Bridges is over an incline, Yeah, which is so cool. I love it. I love the evolution of it. And I, and I always think like, be the change that you want to see. I talk about this with Aaron a lot. Like as a photographer, my partner, he, you know, he likes having ties to places like Portland where there's agencies and there's people and there's a lot of stuff happening all the time. And, and I'm like, yeah, but what if we could just create this stuff in Tahoe and like, build that here because yeah. I believe in that oh yeah yeah I think Reno has a lot of potential totally um, I think Sacramento and the Bay Area have a lot of potential as well yeah um, but I think the for me the most rewarding thing is like the Gazette's at the end of this month will be going into our fourth year since we turned subs on mm -hmm. and when I think about like kind of what has our impact been like donated a ton of money uh, to POW, to Shane McConkey Foundation, to High Fives, to Little Free Libraries, to um, a mental health uh, organization that Connie Marshall and her husband run for ski patrollers. Like mm. we're always down to help. Yeah. But I think I maybe I mentioned it before, or we talked about it before the podcast. But like I have five to six students. Tile Exhibition Academy. I took my journalism class like four years ago. They're graduating on Saturday and going to journalism school. Yep. And they're not going to ski journalism school. Like they're going to journalism school to like figure out their place in the world. Yeah. You know, like one of my former students wrote for the local paper when she was 17 about what it feels like to be a 17 year old female driver in Reno. Oh, interesting. And she feels like uncomfortable being in parking lots by herself. And mm -hmm. like, Again, that perspective has always been here, but it's never been shared. It's yeah. never like they never had the tools. So I think like, you know, we've helped my team and I have helped a dozen independent magazines, you know, and like, yeah, we're here. We're based in Tahoe. All of our content's not from Tahoe. We certainly have like yourself and Aaron and Megan and Julie. And there's so many contributors that are based here. I mean, Gaffney's written for us. Um, but we're not a Tahoe magazine. I'd say we're a, like, we're a magazine that covers topics from all over the world, but like 
to me, that same courtesy that like Timmy and Ralph's and Roner like shared to me when I first moved here, like that's what we're trying to do as a brand. Mm -hmm. So like if we're any, if there's any part of us that makes us a Tahoe magazine, it's that I find that we're flipping the perception of this being like a bro town USA and like, you know, Squallywood and like all that. Like, no, that's, that's always been a joke. I think unfortunately the joke went too far and it became our, the perception and the reputation here, but no, we want to be a welcoming community. And my yeah. is that just like I received when I moved here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm proud of like our team. I'm proud of our contributors. Like I think that we've like my job now is to mentor these young media professionals the way I already mentioned, like so many people mentored me right? and to give back. We can't give back to everybody. Yeah. But we try. Yeah. We try to help where we can, when we can. How many subscribers do y'all have now? So we are approaching 6,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. We have a 91% auto renewal, mm -hmm. meaning 91% of the people that try Mountain Gazette stay with us. Yep. And I don't like, I don't really worry about how, like how, I used to worry about how many, cause it was like. We need to reach a critical mass to be a business. Right. We're, we're past that now. Like Austin and then Merritt, our web developer who lived here and helped Arcade, helped Moment build their sites. Like we talk a lot about like how many people do we want? Mm -hmm. Like 10,000, 100,000. I mean, we're, we're adding like 300 subscribers a month. Mm -hmm. Wow. And we're only losing about 200 a year. Mm -hmm. So we have 11 months of growth. Like year over year consistently. We feel good about that. Um, this is all I do. Yeah. That feels good. Yeah. Like this is the only thing I do. Mm -hmm. Um, and my goal is to get some of our contractors where it's the only thing they do. Yeah. So that's how big do we want to be that big? Yeah. And we don't really know what that is yet. And how many, ma how many magazines per year? Two. Two. Yep. Two, uh, 160 pages, our 200th issue of Mountain Gazette's coming out in the fall. And we decided, you know, when I was at Powder, we did 40th anniversary. I've been a part of a couple of anniversary issues for different titles. Um, we were like, how do we celebrate 200? And like, I've only been doing this for a couple of years, so I didn't want to go too far back and like celebrate all the Mountain Gazette stuff. Right. So we're just going to make it 200 pages. So it's going to be like a coffee table book. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Chris Burkhardt's making his Mountain Gazette debut. Oh, wow. Which would be sweet. He reached out to me and said he hasn't contributed to mag magazines in maybe like 10 years. But he's fired up on Mountain Gazette. Fired up. He's a subscriber. Yeah. You know, I think that's the key to me is that all of our contributors are also subscribers. It's not a prerequisite, but like they get inspired. Just like yeah. you did with Greece, right? You're like, hey, I'm, I, like I took the photo. You've got the Mountain Gazette original subscriber, which means you subscribed at 194 right when we started. Yep. Um, which I appreciate. That's really awesome. <laughs> and it's always been really validating to me is like the people like yourself, like Cody, like Adrian, Emily, like that Jeremy Jones, like people I'm like huge fans of your work. Like the fact that you guys are now subscribing to this magazine that we're making, like it's really validating. Mm -hmm. It's like extremely validating. It's actually a little intimidating sometimes. Yeah, I bet. I mean, Jeremy is making his mountain gazette debut mm -hmm. this fall and like it's been a big thing for him he's yeah. like reached out like he's a very busy man yeah he's got a lot going on 
but the fact that he takes the time out to send me an email like about hey i'm thinking about writing it this way or this way like i mean he's involved he's yeah. like psyched um yeah i don't know i we're in a great place i'm trying to recognize that too yeah Cause absolutely because it, it doesn't always happen this yeah. way you know like you said earlier like magazines die media companies die yeah you know i think they lose their way i think they go for clickbait I think they go for ad dollars a little too hard. Well, it's constantly changing too. Like, I guess in the beginning of our conversation, I was like, there's two things I want to touch upon. And one of them, the other one that I didn't ask in the moment was the fact that it seemed to me when you were growing up, these ski movie premieres on the East Coast were pretty important. Oh, yeah. In how you like became passionate about skiing and understood the ski world and were exposed to all of this stuff. And to me, I guess like, the medium that I like show my work is through ski films. Yeah. And I know during COVID, like, well, I think that's changed so much. You had Nimbus independent start out with like the webisode thing. And then that, yeah. I think they were almost ahead of their time. Way ahead of their time. Right. And yeah. then like, I mean, last year I went hard on tour. I went to 12 different movie tour stops. I was in four different movies. So that was part of that. But like going to those films and seeing the rooms fill up and having that one-on-one -on -one interaction with people, like I needed that just as much as these individuals that were attending the premieres needed that, like that there's this feeling, there's this momentum, there's this love and camaraderie. And like you actually get to talk to people face to face and shake their hand and sign a post-it for them and have meaningful conversation after the premiere. Like yeah. that's what it's about to me. I don't love the online stuff as much as I love that in-person, like impactful moments. I'm with you. Um, you know, I have two thoughts on that, Michelle. So, so one is like the, the two phenoms, we're the same age. So the two phenoms after like New Canadian Air Force that like came out were, were Candide, most elusive person. Like you have probably have a better chance seeing a mountain lion than you do Candide. <laughs> True. Person. Yeah. Um, and Tanner. And when Tanner came out, I mean, it's hard to overstate just how nuts it was. You're like, yo, this kid is like 18 years old and really, really good. And then when he's at Saratoga Winters in upstate New York for an MSP premiere and you show up and you're like, yo, he's like a year and a half older than me. Yeah. Like it just, I'm not at all relating myself to Tanner Hall, but I'm saying like he was a human being. Yeah. Which almost made his accomplishments more sick. You're just yeah. like, oh, this is just a person. But I think like, media does a really good and bad job of like inflating these people totally as being sort of superhuman. Yep. But you're extremely talented athletes and also human beings. And I don't know, I've always thought the relatability, it, it's a better connection. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's like really important to me. And then on the in-person thing, like I'm glad that you're going to these things. Like we just did our first in-person mountain Gazette event in mm -hmm. Boston. I haven't shared the story, and I'll share it here um, for the first time, but this guy came up to me and said, hey man, um, I read your feature about Goose. And I wrote this piece in 198, it's my first feature I wrote for the magazine. And it wasn't really about the band so much as it was about how my wife and I were thinking about having another kid. I was really hesitant, just like not sure of myself. And it was more about like me and like kind of like, how I found this band and their music kind of like helped guide me 
and their lyrics helped guide me through like a really tough time. It's pretty vulnerable. This guy in Boston came up and he's like, my wife and I are struggling to have a kid right now. And I read your piece and like, dude, it like really spoke to me and it made me feel like I wasn't alone. Mm. And I'm not going to lie. It made me feel like I was like 50 feet tall. Yeah. But more importantly, like I put my hand on this dude's shoulder. We like grabbed a beer. We like sat down and chat. Like, oh my God, I remember that. Like, oh yeah, I remember that. And like that meant everything to me. Yeah. Like I don't care how many subscribers we have. Yeah. I don't care who subscribes to the magazine. That dude coming up and saying that to me that like he had read a story and it made him feel like he wasn't alone. Yeah. Like the Surgeon General just said that America has an epidemic of loneliness. Yeah. So if we're doing anything with Mountain Gazette, it's making people feel like they're part of a community. They're not alone. They're being heard. They're being seen. Dude, we're a success. We're done. Like, yeah. I'm done. I'm good. Yeah. Interrupting this episode to shout out Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, the original founder, Ken, bought his first brewing kit in 1969. He was a teenager and hid it from his mom. Years later, after many trips to the Sierra Nevada mountains, Ken ended up calling Chico, California home. And in 1980, after years of working on his craft and teaching others, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company made its first trial batch of beer, five barrels of stout. The company's always been committed to lessening their environmental impact and has the largest solar array in craft beer. 99.8% of their solid waste is diverted from the landfill, and their Mills River Brewery is the first production brewery in the United States to receive a Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design Platinum Certification, which is the top green building rating system in the world. My personal favorite sour comes from Sierra Nevada, the wild little thing, and I've been really enjoying their non-alcoholic hop splash, which is such a nice alternative to mix things up with. Huge fan of the company and the people that run the business. Go get yourself some Sierra Nevada. It is, it's, that's such a good accomplishment. And yeah. I think I think similarly with what I do too, like oftentimes we're in the mountains by ourselves and putting forth our best work and you're not making those connections with like the greater population. And I've heard a lot of brands in recent times talk about how professional athletes aren't relatable. And I just call bullshit on that because I'm like, I'm an independent contractor hustling, yeah. working super hard. Totally. I don't put out how many hours I spend behind the computer, how many hours I spend on the phone, how difficult it is to make a film. Like You're, you're a person. Yeah. And, and I run my own small business. Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, I think when, when people because brands do it nowadays they say like oh you're unrelatable and it's kind of offensive i'm like well how like i just disagree i mean this is what i would say to like big brands small brands like i sponsor my son's little league team Mm -hmm. we're the mountain gazette giants yes (laughs) um i think if you measure everything in data in like roi data is really helpful super helpful but if you're like what's the return on investment i don't know like, I don't care. I don't know how many of the parents subscribe to the magazine if they felt <laughs> yeah. like they needed to. Like, it doesn't matter. What makes me happy is that, like, my son's proud of it. His friends think it's cool. You know, like, I don't know. Where are the big brands that are sponsoring, like, their local Little League team? Yeah. Or, like, you know, I, I think one of the cool things about Tahoe, and, like, I know I've seen athletes do in Colorado, is, like, some of y'all do, like, used gear sales. And some people are like, oh, that's just because they need money. Like, no, I actually think it's cool that you guys are doing something with your gear. It's a chance for people to come, like, meet you. Right. See your house, maybe. See, like, and just, like, you're, like, opening up your home to, like, some people to come 
paying. It's not really about the money. It's about like passing the gear on. Yeah. You know, it's slightly used. You can talk about it. Like I really think if the outdoor community is going to succeed, we have to stop thinking that we need to like invite more people. Oh my God, we need more people that can be more. There's plenty of people that are in this community. There's people that are in other communities. We just have to be the most welcoming. Like, right. Tell me how the NBA or Major League Baseball or NFL are like welcoming. Like, you know, there's mm-hmm. not a lot of community events. There's community outreach. They donate a ton of money. I'm not saying, I'm not denying that. What I'm saying though is that like the difference between those major leagues and those professional leagues and what we do here is that the fans, the subscribers, the participants are doing the same sport as the professionals. Yeah, you can be in the lift line and see totally. a pro and be like, oh my gosh, we're riding the same lift. And, you know, like I can tell all your listeners, like, I forgot my boots at home three times this year. What a kook. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. The Jade local says, you know, all of us are kook of the day one day. Yeah. You know, we all make mistakes, you know, like I've heard of people being so nervous. They like fly to Alaska for the first film trip and they forget their airbag and they're like no big deal but the problem is their beacon shovel and probe are in their airbag too and they're just like you get there it's your first trip but like dude that's relatable that's yeah. not like an offense you know so yeah. i do think like relatability is everything yeah and just being like hey we're here you know i'm mike i make mountain gazette i have two kids my one-year-old woke up at 4 30 this morning i couldn't be like dude i have a podcast interview with michelle parker <laughs> He doesn't care. Yeah. He's teething. Yeah. He has the worst thing in the world happening to him right now. Yeah. So that's, that's what I think we can do better as a, an industry is just meet people where they are. Yeah. And try to hear their stories. Yeah, for sure. As opposed to trying to get them to come do our version of it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, on the topic of relatability, like this past season for me was so interesting because I was balancing like my dad having Parkinson's and getting diagnosed with Lewy body dementia in January and realizing that like, I didn't want to be on the road No. and um, I wanted to spend as much time as I could with my dad. And then also recognizing that that meant that I was like keeping my fingers crossed that we had a good winter and then it, it happened. And like, I feel so lucky, but like that balance of, yeah, more or less caretaking and making sure that my dad was occupied and skiing, like, it felt in a different way that I had like this huge responsibility, which actually like was so beautiful in so many ways because I'd never took a day out in the mountains for granted. And I think a lot of people say it's like your escape. That's where you're going. You're escaping reality. And for me, it was grounding. It was quite the opposite. It made me feel like I had, you know, purpose and um it was a driving force it motivated me more than ever because every second of my day was worth something if i wasn't with my dad i better be getting after it and like whether that be in work or you know making sure my house was dialed or whatever it was i mean there was a lot of making sure your house was dialed this year oh yeah (laughs) but it like really taught me these beautiful and important lessons and you know still i don't regret any of the film days the perfectly blue epic powder days that i left behind to go play pickleball inside with my dad like those are moments that i'll remember for forever and yeah i don't know we all go through this our parents get old like i also think though like for your listeners for our readers at Mount Gazette. For some of them, maybe, but for most, it's not relatable 
for you and I to sit here and talk about how uh, epic like a day at KT was or a heli day or whatever. But I mean, thank you for sharing what you just shared. I mean, I, I think everyone listening will either has either experienced or will experience the idea of like caring for an elder parent, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my father-in-law has had illnesses before Meg and I have had to help and try to take, take care of him a little bit. And like, I think, you know, again, I go back to it. I say it over again. We're all, we're all human. Yeah. And that's how we need to connect. And it makes the accomplishments of certain people. Like, I don't know, like I guarantee you have listeners that should reach out to you for sure. And be like, Hey, I'm maintaining like a career. I'm at the top of my game. And one of my parents is ill or relatives ill and I'm taking care of them. Like the balance of that. Like I admire that and you, man, like the balance of that is, it's gotta be really challenging. So it is. And, and exactly what you're saying. Like I listened to a New York times podcast about, it was a Sunday read and it was about like our generation caring for elders and that like hit home pretty hard. And then additionally I had like through Lucy Sackbauer, she connected me with a friend who was a pro skier turned caregiver to their, uh, I believe it was his father. And I haven't yet like dove in with that person. Cause I mean, with these neurological disorders, it's like, it's only going to get harder. And, uh, but for me, like those connection points, and that's why I'm very openly talking about all this stuff. Cause that is something that will all, most of us will experience at some point in time. And totally. yeah, the balance of that. And I don't know, it can be beautiful and it can be really, really emotional as well. And I think, you know, too, like in the past, like, I think it's why I think we're living in a really cool time to be in media is in the past you would use a uh, cheap metaphor. So, you know, I can almost like imagine you saying, like, it's just a new peak for me to conquer. You know? <laughs> right. And it's like, dude, that's not what this is. Yeah. You know, like that's not what this is. Right. It's, I've wanted to play pickleball with your dad though. I've never played before. Oh so my I got to get out and play. I've Let's heard, go. I've heard like rumors like Tahoe is a small community yeah. and people talk. And the thing I've heard is that your dad is a pickleball, like G. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The rumors are true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is our uh, activity that we get to do together for the most part, like almost every day in the summertime. And like we did it twice a day, uh, twice a week. And during the wintertime, we went to the Truckee Rec Center and, and I was connecting with this total new generation also like 70 plus year olds, you play a sport and they kick your ass at pickleball. They're that good. They're all like old tennis players. And then I had like these incredible, and I mean, I have so many new friends that I like talk to on the phone. We shoot texts back and forth. Like one of them was in Alaska at the same time I was in Alaska, totally different experience in Alaska. But like, I don't know the, the, uh, you know, that generation to me, I feel like I can learn a ton from them. I feel like I can kind of add a little bit of youth into their day as well. And like, it's beautiful to have multi-generational friendships and community and like kind of building that alongside my father and like interjecting myself into his community and understanding that a lot more has given me just so much more perspective on life. And I don't know it. I, I keep reflecting on all these really positive moments that happened and like, yes, like there were many days where I was bawling and like, it was really, really hard. Um, but simultaneously, like 
what I gained from those moments and what the perspective shift in perspective for me, like small stuff didn't matter. I didn't give a shit. Any little drama thing, I was like, not affecting me. Like I'm, yeah, there's bigger things in life. It was, it was really cool to like experience that with him. And, and, and for those listening to like, we turned him around quite a bit, like just being more attentive and, and spending a lot more time with him. He's doing a lot better now than I think he was before. And, we're still playing pickleball, but I'm yeah. like tying his shoes, helping him out of the chair. Like I shave his face, I cut his hair. And then like <laughs> we get on the pickleball court and I think everyone watching must be like, oh, uh, I don't know how they're gonna play it. And then we're just like, yeah, it's on. <laughs> Which uh, for those of you who like don't know Michelle's father or Michelle that well, like you're both like practical jokers. <laughs> yep. Like for sure. Um, I can only imagine you know, like just what it's like to be a part of that community with you guys. And just like, I mean, yeah, I can't see you guys as like wallflowers. Like you're in the game. You're getting, Oh, we're participating. You're mixing it up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I've, I always say like, it's not my magazine, it's yours. And I think what's cool is, I always want our readers to see themselves in the magazine. Mm-hmm. Always. Whether it is an epic trip, you know, like your photo feature um, to Greece or, you know, Grace's story or Miles Howard's story about Boston, you know, like the idea of like having access in your backyard. That's something that you and I can really appreciate and take for granted because of where we live. But yeah. Boston now, like, you know, folks in Boston can feel the same way that we feel like. We have this epic hike that's ours and it's here. It's in our city. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's really important. Like if you're making media today is to one, understand your audience and two, try to make sure that they're seeing themselves in your content. And like that can go wrong. Like there's some like gnarly media out there that's like playing to the worst of people. You know, at Mountain Gazette, we're trying to play to the reality of people, mm-hmm. not the worst, not the best, but somewhere like in the middle. Right. Where kind of we all live. Yeah. And that's really important to us. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about just the media landscape changing too, like, I don't know. I think it's fascinating how the stories we tell are, a lot of them are for free. Yeah. They should not be. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, on the film side of things, like it is so expensive to pay a fair wage and make a film. I mean, paying a fair wage is a key aspect there. Like pay the oh, yeah. filmers what they're worth and make a film and like everyone gets paid and then you don't profit off of it. Like, I don't know, it's really expensive. It's hard to do. These indie film companies that are coming up, like support them in any way that you can. I think we have to stop caring about audience size. Yeah. And more about audience impact. Right. Like dude, there are magazines that are like a hundred times bigger than us. And I would be willing to put everything on the line that they don't make a dent in their audience. Right. I call them dentist magazines. Mm-hmm. You're at the dentist. You're flipping through. And you're flipping <laughs> yeah. through and you're like, okay. Yeah. Whatever. And yeah. whatever, man, that's a, that's a way to do it. Right. You know, I think, you know, using social media to like fire people up, you know, like I think that's a strategy that some people have. Is that the impact you want to have? You go home at night, put your head on the pillow, close your eyes, and you say, oh, man, I inflamed so many people today. Mm-hmm. 
that's not to say you shouldn't tell the truth. You know, we've mm-hmm. certainly had articles that people found controversial. Um, but that was not our intent. Our intent was to answer a question, mm-hmm. you know, and not in like a Tucker Carlson, let's ask questions about it. It was like, no, yeah. we wanted to like legitimately ask a question and answer it down the middle. Um, I think, I think that free media, media is kind of like food. Like you get what you get, yeah. what you put into it. If and what you're you spending $4 on a, mcdonald's happy meal like that's what you're gonna get a four dollar meal right uh, it's gonna be quick it's gonna be fast you can get your car you can eat it quickly but it's not maybe not great for you yeah you know um but if you're paying like and it's not about like paying like a hundred dollars for a meal it's like but if you're like seeking out better quality food and whatever like then you're probably gonna have better access mm-hmm um, I don't know how to answer the question of like access to good media. I can say that like PBS puts out incredible, you know, reader and listener supported content. Mm-hmm. It's really good for you. Like, you know, it's like the BBC and you know, the UK or I, I think that there's a lot of good media out there, but I do think that like ultimately like it's like you get what you pay for. Yeah, and we've become so used to getting stuff for free. Like and all, all of, and all the time. All the time. But yeah. at the end of the day, like, are these filmmakers getting paid? What they deserve to get paid? Are they even getting paid? Like, I think if a if a something comes up on Vimeo that I want to watch, I'm paying for it. I mean, heck, I, I will pay for like their real rock uh, subscription for their film festival just to see one film. And then I'm like, oh, and all these other films, like I want to contribute yeah, because think- ultimately everyone's a bit of an artist and like pay for it. I pay for it. And like understand that, you know, so recently, like I get asked quite a bit, like what media do, do I consume? Um, I am like obsessed with New York Magazine right now. I don't know if they had an editor change or what, but like some of the pieces, like I, I gladly like pay for a subscription mm-hmm. to that, even though it's included with my Apple News Plus subscription, like, I pay for it. Yeah. Um, I pay for Cream Magazine. I think it is like John and his team are doing such a good job of like introducing me to bands I would never seek out on my own mm. and like telling me stories about music that I would never consider. Um, I'm super into um, New York Times just launched a new audio app off of Autumn. And so like they're reading stories, but they have this uh, new podcast called The Headlines. Mm-hmm. It's just, hey, here's like five stories that are really important today. And there's more you can learn. Like, And then it's like a almost like a table of contents extended, yeah. which is really good. Again, pay for it. Yeah. Um, I think I'm doing a better job. Rick, for the lead singer of Goose, like kind of, we talked a lot about this, about telling people that you like their stuff. Yeah, I think that's a big thing too. That's part of the culture change. Like if you want free media, it's totally fine. Tell your free media people what you like about them. Yeah. And tell them they can use it in their media kits. Yeah. You know, like totally, you could totally use my quote in your media kit. And I think that's important. Like our readers tell us all the time what they like and don't like. It's such an important feedback loop that we want. And we don't want just positive feedback. We want negative too. We want like, what do you like, whatever. But 100%. I think you're like nine out of 10 times more likely to leave a negative review than a positive. Like 
I don't know, try to make that five out of 10. I love, like on Yelp, if I go to a restaurant or something, I love writing that positive review. Yeah. One time I got busted. Really? (laughs) Yeah. At actually the National Brewery, the new restaurant. Yeah. I was like writing a review and the waitress came over and it was a super positive review, but I got mad self-conscious that she thought that I was maybe writing a negative review because that would (laughs) probably be what I would assume if I was a waitress and I came over. I'm like, oh, she's on Yelp. Oh gosh. Um, But yeah, then they thanked me later because they were like, whoa, we read your review and thank you so much. Speaking of stuff I pay for and I'm into is like, I, I, um, I'm really into this app called Infatuation, okay. which is like a newer version of Yelp. And they try not to do negative stuff. It's just like, hey, here's some places we like. And right now they're only in cities. They're like growing. Mm-hmm. But they come up with these categories that are just hilarious. Like Megan and I are bringing the boys to Manhattan. And they have like the top 15 restaurants where your kids can act like complete lunatics and no one's <laughs> yes. going to care. And we're like, oh, cool. And now we have 15 restaurants we have to choose from. Not that they're lunatics, but you do like the escape route. Yeah. Um, there's like great media everywhere. And I think one of the big problems I see with a lot of my friends, a lot of my family, some of our readers is they feel like they're supposed to consume and we'll just use the New York Times because like a lot of us like the New York Times, but they think that because they vote blue or whatever, they're supposed to read the New York Times. If you don't like the New York Times, don't read it. Yeah. Like, it's fine. But I think, like, that's the thing is, like, don't hate consume media. Yeah. Like, find media that, like, speaks to you, feels credible, and ask yourself, how does it make me feel? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not supposed to be, like, chicken soup for the skier's soul. You yeah. Know? Like, that's not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm saying is, like, Find the media company that respects you as a reader. Yeah. I think like you can tell when media companies are like tweeting year old articles, mm-hmm. maybe they're not investing in it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can tell you, like we were just told recently that like we have a great magazine, we have great writing, great photos, and we do nothing else well. That's the point. Mm-hmm. That was literally why we built the business this way. That's mm-hmm. our whole point. And so I don't know. Artists, you know, I'm looking at your Chris Ben Chetler piece right here. Like, I know Chris has been making, like, doubling down on his artwork lately. And, like, dude, I'm blowing it up as much as I can. Yeah. Telling him how sick it is. Like, I'm so psyched. I don't know where he's going with his artwork, but I want to see more. Yeah. You know, keep creating. Yeah. I told you yesterday, like, hey, I've been listening to your pod. I like it. You're getting better. Like, I always look for people, like, who's getting better at what they're doing? Like, you're totally getting better at this, too. You're good at it, but you're getting better at it. And I told you yesterday that I don't really hear a ton of feedback on the podcast. Yeah. And to me, like, I really want to see it through. I want to stick with it. We did one season. You'll be the first episode of the second season. And there was some personal debate for me. Like, do I want to continue? Like, I have no idea if this is making an impact. I don't really hear from people. So reach out. Yeah. yeah, exactly what like tell your the people if you're consuming like yeah, constructive criticism, I'm all for it. And also like I think of this with like Chris's art or like other skiers that are creating stuff like share it. If you're down with it, like share what you like too because it is a privilege to be able to afford this media. Yeah. And so if you're consuming stuff for free, like yeah, I don't know, support those athletes, support those media companies, whatever it may be and share that stuff. Like all of us, for most people, they go to the coffee shop in the morning and buy their cup of coffee. Either it's like near their house, it's convenient, it's a great cup of coffee, they like the barista, like whatever. Do the same thing with your media. Yeah. Like show up and like just make it a part of your life. Mm-hmm. Tell people about it. Yeah. 
go to dinner with your friends and be like, did you listen to this pod? I think it's cool. Right. You know, I feel like every day I go on social media and someone's like, give me podcast recommendations. That's your time to shine. <laughs> Here's three that I like. As opposed yeah. to going into that rabbit hole, I'm like, I can't believe you listened to this one. Like, right. Doesn't do anyone any good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, like I said, like the media that I consume, I love it. Mm-hmm. It like, it's a part of who I am. It informs who I am. It informs my opinions about the world. It's really important to me. And yeah. so I tell everyone about it. like New York mag is like a new thing for me. It's like six weeks old, but I'm like, I'm in it. Yeah. I finally their long form stuff is good. Their short form stuff is good. Their reviews are good. I was psyched. We just got a review of mountain Gazette in there. Oh no way. From That's a former awesome. outside writer. Who's yeah. Just like, Oh yeah. It's a good gift for your boyfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, sweet, you know, or your girlfriend or your partner or your friend. What about within the ski industry? Like, what media are you consuming? Who do you think is doing a good job? Um, and what do you think we could change? Um, in the ski industry, so I, I'm... I listen to Mike Powell's podcast when there's someone on that I'm interested in. Or uh, Derek Taylor told me one time he listens to the Powell movement to catch up with old friends because he's got two kids as well. And I, yeah. I really do like doing that. Yeah. Um. Eric Pollard's been making some shorts. We were talking about Nimbus earlier. Like, yep. I think anytime that dude does anything creatively. Eric Pollard piece right over there. Yeah, yep. like he, I mean, drawn from here, it's nuts. I, I do think that's probably one of the best ski films of the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. It still holds up. It's also the last Powder Award Movie of the Year winner. Oh my gosh, yep. Which was key. Um, I find that ski media is in a bit of a rut right now mm-hmm. um, and that's not to be negative but I'm waiting for there's some young people coming up and I'm just kind of like watching and mm-hmm. waiting mm-hmm. Um, and it's good I'm going to be 38 this year I should not be the person with the finger on the pulse of ski media mm-hmm. I was that person when I was 19 and 20 and I was contributing to it right mm-hmm. Uh, we're an outdoor culture magazine, so I'm looking a little broader right yeah. now. Um, but I find there's some interesting films that have been coming out. Have you seen the Balkan Express? No, send it to me. Oh my gosh, I will. There you go. See? Look yeah. at that. Something you like. Love that one. Um, I find that there's some like really funny creators. Like Honestly, like, do you know my favorite piece of media is right now in skiing is Donnie Pelletier. <laughs> you, you would know. yeah well it's not even the east coast part of it but like well is it though it's not though because i mean i'm just gonna spoil donnie for you like his name is troy he lives in san francisco <laughs> he's from maine but like what i find to be really interesting is like he's doing a lot of good like mm-hmm. there are kids in maine that like dress up as him like, yeah they want to go meet him like the state of maine like i feel like pays him to like show up to ski areas like what I think is cool is like he took a micro community, like I was talking about earlier. And, yeah. And he's like blown it up. And what I find is like he's he's funny without being cruel. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like he did that video with Darren and like Darren was giving it back to him. Mm-hmm. And it was fun that he was like willing to be the butt of the joke. Yeah. I don't know. That takes like astute like media training media ability to be able to like be making fun of something but not punching down yeah 
I see a lot of punching down right now. Yeah. In ski media, I see a lot of like. I think that there's this idea that like, we all have to be competing. Like, here's the thing: there's no ski media or outdoor media brand that's going to take all the dollars. Yeah. It's impossible. There's no athlete that can take it all. There's conflicts, whatever. Like, you might want that. Let's use Patagonia. Patagonia sponsorship. It seems pretty narrow-minded to want one outerwear brand to be your brand when there's like 50 to 100 of them that could probably pay you as well, if not more. Mm -hmm. You know? And you could have a bigger impact. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a diss on Patagonia. I just think that like we get so narrow-minded about dollars and contracts and audience like dude we encourage our audience to like we literally post every sunday articles that we don't write Mm -hmm. where we're like this is dope yeah this is good media yeah you know like be a little more sure of what you're putting out in the world and look and find the stuff that you like you don't have to talk shit about what you don't like totally you know i'm i'm waiting for you know it's funny like I'm waiting for Sierra Schaefer to get like her chance because I feel like she was put into a corporate environment at powder and then a corporate environment at ski where she wasn't allowed to like really flex mm-hmm. and do her thing. And I'm hoping that she gets that chance because I think that she could really put out a brand of ski content that's different from everybody else. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, I think Cade Kreechko is an extremely talented editor. Yeah. You know, he was an intern at Powder. Um, I'm waiting for him. Same thing. Like, when's he going to, like, break free and go put out his own thing? Yeah. Um, I, that's what I'm ready for is, like, people taking that leap. Yeah. I'm going to use myself. Like, I was really sure of myself that it was going to work with Mountain Gazette. Like, if you don't know what that is, you're listening to this and you want to put out a piece of content, like, Dig deep, put in the work, find out what you want to put into the world. Yeah. And then, can we swear? Yeah. Fucking do it, man. (laughs) Fucking do it. Because, dude, we're ready for it. Yeah. Like, I love Blister Review because Jonathan Ellsworth thought we needed 10,000 word toe piece reviews. Mm -hmm. And you know what's great? He has an audience. And there's people out there that are like, yeah, we needed this. It's epic. You know, Backcountry Magazine. Howie was a powder intern. Mm-hmm. Backcountry Magazine is what Adam Howard believes needs to be out in the world. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. Adventure Journal. Steve Casimiro just kind of redesigned it like a year or two ago. It's better than it was. And you know who he cares about? His audience. Yeah. He's not worried about making the mountain because that audience, oh, do they like it? Or like, does the Backcountry audience or does Michelle's audience like it? He has an audience. Yeah. And he's giving them what they want. He's challenging them. He's like, and that's why they like it. Yeah. It's not just feeding them the same crap every day, getting mm-hmm. addicted to it. It's like, he's challenging them. People like the recipes, you know, whatever. I just think like, be invigorated. And if you're not invigorated by this, do something else. Because as everyone likes to say, there's no money in the industry. It's not true. We're one of the biggest industries in the United States. There's yeah. plenty of money. You're just not talking to the right people. Right. You know, like, or making something that is of quality. Yeah, that's it. And like, and that's a good thing to know. The stuff I'm putting out isn't that good. 
Right. You know, the challenge that John Kim and I have with every issue of Mountain Gazette is make it better than the last one. Yeah. That's a sustainable model for us forever. Yeah. Eventually there will be a time where maybe Mountain Gazette gets a little stale and maybe it's because my interests have waned, in which case maybe it's time for me to hire a younger editor with a different perspective who's like ready to take that challenge and be like, I've read Mountain Gazette since 194 and I know exactly where we need to go. Right. And the ability to one day like hand those reins off and be like, dude, take it, drive this car. Like you stole it. Yeah. Like don't look back. I think that's part of why I've been so, uh, you know, continuously doing this thing as a professional athlete. This was my 20th year. And like, I feel like every single year is different and I've taken a totally different approach almost every single year. Like there was time in between where I was filming with matchstick and I loved filming with them, but it was too simple for me. It wasn't as involved. And so then I started originate and that was amazing. And we had our run of doing that. And then now I'm like, I don't know, this year was the first time I ever directed a film and like learning that process and then honing in on what I really want to do next year is like, it's a constant evolution of like trying new stuff and then seeing it through. Yeah, get better. Yeah, get better. I mean, I love hearing like other people interview you, Michelle, and say like, you've reinvented yourself. I'm like, no, you can only slam your head on concrete in the streets so many times before you're like, maybe I should try something else. This isn't working for me. Right. But then you've got Wally who's the same age as us who's still hitting handrails, you know, or like our old pal JP Claire, who was like, you know, in his mid thirties putting out epic street skiing, like legendary street skiing. Yeah. But like, I think we have this idea that like quitting is a bad thing. Like quitting is not ending. It's, it's beginning something else. Absolutely. You know, like, and you can be like, I mean, I've tried a lot of things in my career, you know, and I'm not going to like list them, but I can tell you like, I'm not Luke Van Valen. Like I can't, or, or even Wallish. Like I can't like announce skiing. I've announced skiing. I've been Mm. paid to announce skiing. I paid rent doing it. Haven't done it in like seven or eight years. Cause I was just like, nope. That wasn't filling my cup. Yeah. You know, like I quit magazines for a while. And what I realized was like, that was the itch that I always wanted to scratch. And like, I don't want to host a podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a social media creator. Like my Instagram feed is like my kids and my wife and like some photos of my skis on KT. Like it's pretty boring. <laughs> it's really, it's for my friends and family. Yeah. You know? Like it's not meant for the mountain Gazette audience. Yeah. We have our own page for that. And there's a reason why it has like two and a half times as many followers as I do, because it's better. Yeah. You know, like I think like if you're not being fulfilled by your creative path, like switch it up, switch it up, change totally. it up again. Like we're seeing Chris like produce more art. Yeah. It makes me wonder like maybe making, films is not what he wants to do anymore. Maybe it's like making art. You could imagine it's like he has kids, he's got family. He lives in a beautiful place. Like maybe it's really nice to wake up every morning and be in your home and make art. Yeah. Like for me, I love living in North Lake Tahoe and putting out two magazines a year and skiing a hundred days a year, like 40 of which were with my four year old, you know, like that, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean that that's perfect. Like, how many subscribers? I don't care. We have enough subscribers to keep doing this. Yep. You know, we have enough ad partners and a waiting list for ad partners that like, we don't worry about like, 
oh man, we have to do like mountaingazette.com better and be more breaking news because we need to get ad dollars. Like, no, like sit down and I don't know, craft your life. Yeah. How do you want to be like, Michelle, you were a pro skier and you spent more time with your dad than I bet you have since you lived at home with him. Totally. And that's epic. Yeah. And you directed your first film this year and you have a podcast and you joined a new ski brand and you did all stuff, but you did it from right here mm-hmm. because you crafted your life that way. Yeah. I think too many people are trying to build media brands to like impress other people or like attract advertise. It's like maybe, maybe being a salesperson isn't for you, you know, like whatever, right. like I just think life's short. If you have the ability to switch it up, switch it up. Totally. And explore those options. Like yeah. it's pretty fun to, I find like those moments where I explore other things, whether it's entering in my first hundred mile bike race or yeah. picking up a camera and you being like, okay, we can do this for Mountain Gazette. Like that yeah. was so sweet for me. I was like, Dude. oh yeah. Okay. Now I have like so much purpose with this camera in hand. Like I really want to like deliver and I want to do it well. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, it kind of cracks you open on the vulnerable side because you yeah. don't know what you're getting into, but yeah. then you grow from it and you might find new passions. It might open up other doors. Like, I love that. I love that. I think like the hardest thing for some of our contributors is like the fact that sometimes we have to say no mm-hmm. just because we are so limited. Yeah. But what a contributor recently told me is like, yeah you do say no. We get 6,000 pitches a year, less than 50 stories. We have to say no a lot of the time. Sometimes we can't respond to every pitch. But, you know, Doug Schnitzbahn, who wrote the Kitchen Dwellers piece, he's written about Neowise for us. He's had two stories in the Gazette. He pitches me all the time. Mm -hmm. I say no more than I say yes. But he tells me all the time, those two stories in the Gazette, he hears about more than anything in his career. And he's been doing this for like 25 plus years. Yeah. You know, like, I think that's the key is like, it doesn't mean you can't write for other people. It doesn't mean you can't keep doing this and getting better at it. But like for what we're doing, like well, I won't even say the best. It's mostly just like for me, it's the most interesting. Like I was talking right. about Mike Nutorino, who's got these crazy animal photos in 199. That dude met me backstage at Goose and said, yo, I shoot photos. Follow me on Instagram. Mitch 10. <laughs> like how everyone that's listening to you has heard someone be like, yo, follow me on Instagram. Yeah. And you're like, oh, geez. I did. And he's an insane Buffalo, New York based photographer. Yeah. That no one had ever heard of. He had like 600 followers when I followed him. And I was like, okay. And now he's got 14 photos in the Mountain Gazette. So like, it's not about like your name or recognition or whatever. I just think like, it's about being true to what you find is filling up your cup. Yeah. And then my job as an editor is just to find those people and be like, yep. Like I could tell, like when you shot photos in Greece, I mean, I always tell everyone my favorite, favorite image from that whole magazine was the spread we ran of the oranges in the sun. Mm-hmm. And people are like, what? It's like no action. I'm just thinking like, this is a ski story. Yeah. And we took two feet wide by a foot and a half tall of real estate in a yeah. magazine that's expensive and exclusive. And we just put oranges on it. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't know. I don't think anyone's ever done that before. Yeah. Well, that's like the intricacies. Like even for me on that trip, when I was shooting photos, I was like, the skiing's amazing, but I'm also the one skiing. So I was skiing around with a 70 to 200 in my backpack, like hitting cliffs, like, okay, I got this, like this works. Um, but then like the experience of going there was so much deeper than the skiing. Like, I don't know, seeing that shepherd, uh, the sheep herder that we came across, actually, I think it was goats, but he was like, in his, I think, 
early 70s if not late 60s running up and down these mountains as if he had knees of a 20 year old and we like stopped i was in awe at his athleticism and his lifestyle and just like we had a super long conversation with him um with our friend cp who's greek and speaks fluently and I don't know. It was just like that moment for me will always stand out amongst all of the powder turns, whatever it is. There's so much depth to these experiences. Best trip I took during powder was an 1100 mile road trip to the UK because I watched people ski for different reasons. It was right. like watching, you know, the hipsters outside of London wearing their faded Mickey Mouse t-shirts, like just cause it was like, you know, ironic to go skiing. Right. And then being in Sheffield where like Woodsy grew up and only time in my three years of powder, someone made us pay for a lift ticket. They were just like, don't care. Yeah. <laughs> this is a small business and we can't afford to give away tickets. And we're like, great. And so we paid for them. And on the way out, we stuck on our tickets and the guy goes, oh, also the rabbits have been shitting on the course all day. So like, just beware of the rabbit shit. And you're we like... <laughs> I can't like you want to talk about a no fall zone. <laughs> yeah. Like there it is. And then like going to Bears Den up in Scotland where it was like something that I felt deep in my bones, like we were talking about earlier. Like parents bring their kids there, they sit down for a pint. It's an after school activity that happens at night. And it's like more skate park than like ski resort, you know? Yeah. So I just there's micro communities everywhere and people are just waiting for someone in the media to rally them together and create a community. And that's what we've done with Mountain Gazette. We've created a community. Mm -hmm. And it's a space where, like you said, you can feel vulnerable and a little afraid and a little like, how are people going to feel about this? What's cool is like our new contributors feel the same way as you feel. Like there are, I won't name them, but we have some senior people that say like they are afraid to like pitch me. And I'm like, dude, never be afraid to pitch me. The worst thing I can do is say no. Yeah. No is fine. It doesn't mean it's not good enough. It just means it's not a good fit. Yeah. So this has been a lot of fun. It has been. Yeah. I feel like we're coming full circle do here. You, do you have any more questions for me? Or do you have any? I'm happy to. I could be here all day with you. I do have one question that I've uh, sometimes forgotten to ask every guest, uh, every guest but I I really like reflecting on different moments in time and feeling that sense of pride or accomplishment or um, proud of myself. So like if there's anything in your life that you are truly proud of, brag about it. Um, my wife and I have not pushed our children. I'll use Elliot because he's four. We've not pushed them into anything. I think especially here with all the like Olympians and pro athletes, it's like very, very easy to push your kids down a path. Um, the thing that I'm most proud of is that my wife and I are very type A go-getter people, which makes for very interesting relationship dynamics with us sometimes. But we have taken several deep breaths and watched our four-year-old fall in love with his own passions. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that was something that would have come easy to me like five, six years ago. Right. Um, you know, I, I joke about the idea of like my son's taking over the magazine or something someday, but like I also am readily willing that like they might not want to run a print magazine yeah. <laughs> in 2043 or whatever it is. So, um, that's, I am 
like to my bones, the most proud of my children finding what they love. Like, I love that. And knowing that like he's four and that I fell in love with skiing like around his age and look where I am now, look where it brought me look at all the amazing people it's introduced me to. Like maybe he's bound to be the third, the world's third greatest like Lego engineer. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's a dope job. Or like he's a professional like coloring book artist. You know, yeah. like, I don't know what he's going to be, but I know that like he falls in love with things and we've given him space to do so. Yeah. And my parents gave me that, but I know their parents didn't give them that. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pr- kind of proud that like that's carried on into my family from my parents, like onto my children. And my hope is that my grandchildren someday have that same opportunity of just being like fall in love with things, whether it's your career or your hobby, you know, or your escape. Like that's, yeah. yeah. For sure. That's what I'm most proud of is like that they, they have that space. I love that answer. Thanks. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. Yeah. And if you're still here listening, leave a review or drop Michelle a DM. Let us know how we did. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that.